will be in Genesis chapter 22. We are finishing a three-part series on the life of Abraham. And one of the specific things that we've been looking at is really Abraham's life from the perspective of a man. We've asked the question, what is it that God's looking for when God's looking for a man or a woman to use? What type of people did God use throughout the Bible? And therefore, what type of people does God use today? The last two weeks, we have watched Abraham start off good and then fall down and get back up and fall down again. We've watched him fail. And we see the reality that God used real people. Human beings like you and I. Men and women who had failures, weaknesses, fears, who over time learned how to trust in the Lord. And this morning we're going to finish the study of Abraham out of Genesis chapter 22. Last week at the close of the Scripture reading and at the close of the sermon, God gave Abraham the promised son, Isaac, that he had promised him nearly 25 years prior. So that's where we pick up this morning in the story of Abraham. We'll begin in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1 and read 14 verses this morning from the Word of God. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, the lad, and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father, he said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the, wor- and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. 
So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Let us pray. Father, this morning we thank You, God, for Your goodness, for Your faithfulness. We thank You for Your sweet spirit. God, we're thankful that we have the ability to enter into Your presence and go into Your courts and through Your gates with thanksgiving and praise. And Father, we have certainly done that this morning. God, we simply ask one thing. Let Your Spirit fall. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis chapter 22, there are two applications that I want to preach on this morning and I will be done. The first is the eternal significance, the eternal picture, the eternal application of Genesis 22. And then is the daily application where we're living in today and every day of our lives. There's application to both. And so rather than trying to mix the two throughout uh, verse by verse, I've decided this morning to preach first on the eternal application of Genesis 22 and then finish with the daily life application. If ever two suffering people revealed Jesus Christ, it was Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. Their experience is a picture of the Father and the Son and the cross. Jesus said to the, the uh, discouraged disciples on the road to Emmaus that the Bible says He opened up the Scriptures. At that time, the Scriptures meant the Old Testament. That He opened up the Scriptures and began to speak unto them all things pertaining Himself, starting with Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets. I have no doubt that one of the first things that Jesus referenced when He began to explain Himself and the pictures that the Old Testament gave us of Him, I have no doubt that He went through Genesis 22. There are but a handful of, of um, events in the Old Testament that do such a clear and precise job of showing us what would happen on Calvary than what we see here in Genesis 22. Jesus said to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. In Isaac's miraculous birth, at the age of 100 years old for Abraham, Abraham saw the day of Christ's miraculous birth. In Isaac's marriage, in Genesis 24, he saw the day of Christ's coming and the marriage feast where Christ is married to His bride, the church. But on Mount Moriah, when Isaac willingly put himself on the altar, and when Isaac was willing to lay down his life at the obedience of the command of his father, Abraham saw the day of Christ's death and resurrection. We see that the father and the son acted together. The phrase that they were together is twice in verses 6 and verse 8. 
In Genesis 22, we see that the work of redemption and the work of atonement and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was the work of God the Father and God the Son. That on our behalf, God Himself intervened. That Jesus said this, Jesus said, No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly. While it was the Father's command and the Father's will and the Father's plan from the beginning that Jesus would die on Calvary's cross, Jesus Himself laid down willingly and died there on Calvary for the sins of mankind. That includes you and me so that there would be a sacrifice for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so the blood could be applied. He rose from the grave on the third day so that you and I could have new life through the power of God. And we see in the work of Calvary, God the Father and God the Son working together just as we see it in Genesis 22. We see that not only did the Father and the Son act together, but the Son is the one that had to die. Abraham carried a knife and a torch, both of them instruments of death. The knife would end Isaac's physical life. The fire would burn what was rest on the altar. In Isaac's case, a substitute died for him. But nobody could take the place of Jesus on the cross because Jesus was the substitute for you and I. It's interesting that Isaac asked for a lamb. We see that in verse 7. Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? He asked specifically where the lamb would be for the offering. His father said, God will provide the lamb. But I want you to notice that in the text, it was not a lamb that was provided. It was a ram. Because the lamb that would be provided was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. When you ask the question, where is the lamb, the answer does not really come until John chapter 1 and verse 29. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming down the, 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 the uh, seashore there of, 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 the, of the Jordan River, and John the Baptist said, Behold the lamb. Jesus was the Lamb that was provided as a substitute for the sins of mankind. We see that the Son had to bear the burden of sin. Abraham took the wood and laid it upon His Son there at the altar. We see that on Calvary, God took all the sins of the world, past, present, and future, and He laid them upon the shoulder of His Son. And there, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that you and I who believe on Him might become the righteousness of God. What a perfect picture of what would come. God was speaking not only to Abraham and to the generations that would come from His womb and from His seed, but God was speaking to all of mankind and God was saying there is coming a day when there will be a supreme sacrifice there is coming a day when there will be a substitute for your sins. And though you are the ones that ought to be laid on the altar, though you are the ones who are guilty and worthy of death, there will be one who will intervene and pay for your sins so that you don't have to go there. This is Genesis 22. 
God is doing something miraculous through Abraham and Isaac here. After years of struggles, after years of failures, after years of falling down and then getting back up and waiting for God and wondering, God, when will you do what you said you were going to do? Today we see it in Genesis 22. God said, through your life, I will paint one of the most beautiful pictures of what will happen when my son comes. Finally, the son was raised from the dead. Now you say that Isaac did not really die. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Now look at verse 19. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. We see that in a figurative way, as far as it was done in Abraham's mind, and in Abraham's heart, and in Isaac's mind, and in Isaac's heart, Isaac was dead. It was done. It was official. They did not know that God was going to intervene. They did not know that the voice would come from heaven. And in that sense, in a figurative sense, we see that Abraham received his son back from death. We see that Isaac, who laid down his life, who went all the way to the altar, who was bound and placed there on the altar, waiting for the knife to come down, that Isaac too, in his own heart and in his mind, had surrendered himself to death. But God intervened and he came back to life. It is a picture of Jesus Christ who would lay down his life on Calvary's cross, but he would raise from the dead, proving once and for all that he was the spotless Lamb of God, that he was the Son of God, that He was who He said He was, that there's never been any like Him before. There will never be another that comes like Him again. He is the Son of God, and His resurrection from the dead is what separates Him from every other world religious leader. There's only one empty tomb, and it's the tomb of Jesus Christ because He rose from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and He stands victorious today at the right hand of the Father. It's interesting that after he was figuratively raised from the dead, that in the Bible, in Genesis, Isaac's not mentioned again. Not until Genesis 24, 62. Now, it's obvious that Isaac returned home with his father. But it doesn't mention him coming again. It does not mention Isaac again until he is seen meeting his bride. It is a shadow. It is a type of the fact that after Christ rose from the grave, He is going to come back again. We're going to see Him again on God's calendar when Jesus comes to reclaim His church, the bride. And rest assured, brothers and sisters, He's coming. Now this is the eternal application of Genesis 22. It is an amazing picture of God the Father and God the Son working together to bring about redemption. But I want to talk to you now about the daily application. Because in Abraham's time, 
in Isaac's day, when this events were happening, everything that I just told you wasn't running through their mind. They didn't have the history that would come after them. They didn't have the, 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 the Bible as we have it to, to look back and learn from. They were in it. They were living. The Bible was being written by their lives. And this test was a very real test to Abraham and Isaac. We need to learn to distinguish between trials, tests, and temptations. Because they are entirely different. Tests, real tests, heavenly tests, come from God. But temptations do not. Temptations come from our desires within. Trials come from the Lord. Temptations are used by the devil to bring out the worst in us. But the testings of God are used by the Holy Spirit to bring out the best in us. A temptation seems logical, but a trial seems unreasonable. Why would God give Abraham a son in his old age and then ask Abraham to kill him? It was a test. Can I say that you'll never really learn to triumph in the test of your faith until you first learn to overcome the temptations of your wicked flesh and of the devil? In James chapter 1, it says that God does not tempt us to sin. He's not tempted by sin, nor does He tempt anyone to sin. So we must learn to to quit blaming God for our, our, our selfish temptations. That's not, that's, not, that's not from God. That's from within. And we have to learn to overcome our temptations. But the trials are different. Matter of fact, all believers face similar temptations to sin. We see that in 1 Corinthians 10.13. That none of us are tempted beyond what other human beings are. It does not matter what your struggle is. It does not matter if, if you cannot help yourself but gossip when you're on the phone. It does not matter if you're extremely addicted to pornography. It does not matter if you're extremely addicted to drugs or alcohol. It does not matter if you are ruled by greed, if you are so hungry for wealth that you'll do anything you can. It does not matter... If you, if you are a liar, if you are a deceiver, there is no excuse for why you can't come up out of your sin. You are not tempted beyond what anybody else on this earth is tempted by. And you cannot excuse yourself the duty of repenting of your sins. The Bible says God commands every man everywhere to repent. There is a way out. And if you remain in your sin, it's because you choose to stay, to stay there. It's not because there's no way out. It's not because you can't. It's because you refuse to obey God and rely on the power of God to deliver you. We all face similar temptations, but not all believers experience the same trials of faith. You see, God's trials and God's tests are tailor-made for each one of His children. And every experience is unique. 
God never asked Lot to do what he asked Abraham to do. You know why? Because Lot was still trapped up in his temptation. Lot couldn't even overcome Egypt. At least Abraham got up and got out of there. Lot got out of there, looked back and said, I want to settle down in that place. And he moved back and he raised his family there right in the heart of Sodom. And we all know what happened as a result of it. So you've got to be willing to overcome the temptations of your flesh and of this world and grow to the place of maturity if you're really going to be tested by God. In one sense, it's really a compliment when God tests us. It shows us that God is wanting to promote us. It shows us that God is wanting to teach us something. It shows that God is wanting to reveal more of Himself to us. We see this about the testings of God throughout the Bible. In Genesis 22, is the first time the name Jehovah Jireh ever comes into play. It means the Lord will provide or God will see it through. In other words, He will show up and take care of it. It took Abraham about 115 to 125 years to learn this, but he eventually learned it. But here's the point. It was through the test that he grew to know God in a way he didn't know Him before. You see, the trials of God will teach us something about God. The tests of God will teach us something about God. He wants you to know Him. Oh, hear me this morning. May I speak to your soul. God has no favorite children. God doesn't have a favorite son. God doesn't have a favorite daughter. He loves all of us the same. He doesn't love me any more than He loves you. And He doesn't love you any more than He loves me somehow. We have a God that loves us perfectly. He loves us all the same with an undefiled, pure, and holy love. God does not have favorite children in His family. Everything that God's willing to do for one of His children, He's willing to do for the rest. Our problem is not God, it's that we're not willing to go through the test. This morning, God wants you to know Him. He wants you to know Him in a very real and living way. God wants to continue to reveal Himself to you in ways that you never knew possible. God wants you to understand Him. He wants His thoughts to become your thoughts, His ways to become your ways. God is in the business of making sons and daughters. And sons and daughters are meant to take on the image of their father. They're meant to take on the image of their mother and their father. And this is what God wants to do with His children. God never sends a test, though, until He knows you're ready for it. All of us, what we want, we want the on the other side of that experience. That's what we want. That sounds awesome. Everybody wants to be a champion. Everybody wants to be a winner. Everybody wants to have this story where God thundered from heaven and stopped what was happening and intervened and there was the ram. Everybody wants that. But understand, that never would have happened had Abraham not been obedient to God. We live in a culture where everybody gets a trophy. It doesn't matter if you try hard or not. You pass. We live in a culture where everybody's winners. 
I want you to understand something. I'm not being mean-spirited. Everybody's not winners. That's not the truth. Some people lose, and they lose forever, and they go to hell because of it. Everybody doesn't win in the end. And this attitude that's crept into our culture that doesn't matter how hard you try, everybody's going to be a winner. doesn't matter if you get the answers correct. Your teacher will help you change them so that you can pass like everyone else. doesn't matter if you train harder than the other team because in the end we all get trophies. See, this attitude's crept into the church. It doesn't matter how much you serve God. It doesn't matter, you know how often you, you do the things that God's asked you to do or how often you pray or how often you study or how committed you are to the church. It doesn't matter. We're all going to be the same. And it's just not true. Lot and Abraham ended up with two completely different lives. It matters what you do. Your decisions have consequences. And here we see a lifelong life of faith. Even though he failed and got back up, God blessing Abraham. You see, our faith is not really tested until God asks us to bear what seems unbearable. When God asks us to do what seems unreasonable. When God asks us to expect what seems impossible. You see, real faith, the type of faith that moves mountains, the mustard seed faith that Jesus spoke of, is a faith that really begins on the other side of what you, your perceived limitations. God's able to do above and abundantly beyond what you could even think. Ask or imagine. Faith in God really starts when we move beyond what makes sense to us and say, God said. That's why I'm here. God said. Now, I've seen God move. I've seen God do great things. I've watched God in past times in my life. I've got experiences to pull on, but they are not the sole reason that I'm doing what I'm doing. We walk by the promises of God, not by our experiences. And we must learn to get to the place where the simple answer is, God has said, and that is enough. That's the faith that God calls His children to. And that's the type of faith that God was building up in Abraham over a period of time. I wish I could tell you that it comes overnight, but it doesn't. We live by promises, not by explanations. Whether you look at Joseph in prison, Moses at the Red Sea, David hiding for his life in a cave, or Jesus at the cross, the lesson is the same. God's people live by promises, not by explanations. It's not always going to make sense. You're not always going to understand why. But you have to know what God has said and be willing to stand on it and say, I believe God. You see, it looked like God was wiping out everything that Abraham and Sarah had lived for. I mean, they left home when Abraham was 75. She was 65. God said, go to a land that I'll show you. They just started heading in that direction. 
Life had been difficult for them. They, they come head into a famine and, 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 and fearfully go to Egypt. Abraham lies about who his wife is. He gets rebuked by the people of Egypt, sent back to where he's supposed to be, goes back to where he's supposed to be, repents, builds the altar, goes to the same place that he originally built his first altar, gets his heart right with God, continues down the path. Things have not always been easy. They messed up with Hagar. God's, there's already been problems because of that. And finally, at a hundred years old, the promise of God, the Son, is given. They waited a long time for this. I sure pray that somebody this morning, that that will get into your soul. God is not a McDonald's God. God doesn't play the game of, I'll give it to you in 60 seconds or less. If Abraham had to wait 25 years, what makes you think you're any better than Abraham? God says, I'm going to see if you trust me. Be faithful to my word. And Abraham and Sarah had done this 25 years. And now the, the, the lad grows up. More than likely, he was at least a teenager. I've read some commentaries that have, and it's pretty compelling to say he was actually nearly as old as 33 years old, which would have been the same age that Jesus died. It doesn't matter. What we do know is that Isaac was old enough to carry wood. He wasn't a toddler. And this son whom Abraham had fallen in love with, he had waited a hundred years for. God says, go sacrifice him. See, that didn't make sense to Abraham. It didn't make sense to Sarah. It didn't make sense to, to Isaac. But that's what God told Abraham to do. And it looked like God was wiping everything out. This was the greatest test in the life of Abraham. And I want you to notice it came after he received the promised seed. It came after. It teaches us something, child of God. Doesn't matter how spiritual you are, doesn't matter how much you've seen God do, doesn't matter how many promises you've watched God do, there's always more. God is always trying to reveal more of Himself to you. God is always trying to increase our faith. God is always trying to take us from glory to glory. God is always trying to mature us. There never comes a time in our human lives when God says, well, you've learned it all. There's nothing else I have to show you. Just coast until I call you home. There's always more to know about God. What an exciting thing about the real true faith. It's not just about facts. It's not just about learning the stories of some test and being able to answer them correctly. We serve a living God who is actively involved in our lives, who is constantly wanting to be in communion with us. That's a relationship with us and reveal Himself to us. It never gets old. We are part of a living faith serving a living God, a living Savior who is actively involved in our everyday lives. That's exciting. It never gets old. It never comes to the place where we finally have arrived and we know it all. The test was very real. He was asked to give Isaac back to God. We must be careful that God's gifts do not take the place of the giver. 
God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, I am your exceedingly great reward. I'm the reward. I'm the gift. There will be times in our lives, in every one of us, you can rest assured, that God will deal with the thing that seems most important to you and ask if you're willing to let it go. It wasn't really Isaac that God wanted. It was Abraham. But in order to really get Abraham and to get Abraham to that place where he was totally surrendered to God, God said, I've got to take the most important thing in your life and see if you're willing to let it go. I know it was my gift. I know I'm the one that gave it. It's obvious that God intervened and that this was the chosen promise. This was the child that God had promised. It's obvious. But God said, do you love the giver more than the gift? A true worshiper of God holds nothing back from God. But obediently gives God all that He asks. Trusting that God will provide. Can I ask you something this morning? What are you holding back from God? What is it that God wants from you that you're just unwilling to let go of? Might be a lifestyle. Might be a thing. Might be a person. True worshipers. And God is in the business of trying to make true worshipers. Are those who will hold nothing back from God. Now we see that Abraham didn't get there overnight. He had a lot of failures along the way. But Abraham had finally come to learn something. Never doubt in the dark what God has told you in the light. I don't understand, and I'm not God. All I know is that God is right. His ways are higher than our ways. I don't understand why God doesn't wait to speak till we're in the dark. That'd be a little more reassuring. You know, wait until everything seems like it's falling apart and wait until I don't know what I'm supposed to do, and then speak. But most of the time, God speaks ahead of time. And we must learn that no matter what we're going through, no matter what trials we're facing, no matter how dark it may seem, that what God clearly told us beforehand is always true, and I can't doubt it no matter what I'm going through now. This is the lesson of God's children. This is what God wants us to learn. Our problem is the same problem. Hey, and Abraham faced it too. This morning we're talking about Abraham's victory. What an awesome victory. One of the greatest victories ever recorded in the Bible. But come on, we've been studying for two weeks. There were times when darkness closed in that Abraham got fearful and he just wasn't sure if, if, if he was going to stand and do what he was supposed to do. All of us do the same thing from time to time. But the lesson is this. We must learn. We must mature. We must grow. We must come to the place in our faith that when darkness surrounds us, when confusion tries to sink in, when we don't understand why, we stand on the Word of God, we remember what God has said, and we refuse to doubt what God has said just because it's getting dark. You'll never know how close you are to the heavens open up and God saying that wasn't going to happen anyways. 
I just wanted to bring you to the moment. I wanted you to see that I was in control at all times. And finally in Abraham's life, he obeyed with unwavering faith. Abraham had had faith before. We see this when he just left. Went where he's supposed to go. We see a form of faith in Abraham when he was willing to go and fight for Lot and bring him back safely. We see faith in Abraham when he made the altars and praised God and worshipped God. It's not like he was incredibly faithless all the time. But here, for the first time in his life, in the most difficult testing of his life, we see unwavering faith. Here's the lesson. It's incredibly practical. It's not deeply spiritual. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see it. It's incredibly practical and applies to each and every one of us. God is trying to bring us to a place of unwavering faith. And it's not going to happen overnight. That's the truth. But that's God's goal for us. God wants every one of us to learn to walk in that place of unwavering faith. And this is what he did with Abraham. So I asked the question this morning, where does the Lord provide our needs? The answer is in the place of his assignment. God told Abraham, you go to the mountain, I'll show you. Abraham and Isaac went exactly where God told them to go. And it was there and only there that the ram was provided. God provides in the place of His assignment. Abraham was at the right place. And so God could meet his needs. We have no right to expect the provision of God if we are not in the will of God. I thank God for God's mercy and God's grace, but you'll see this. Hey, God let Abraham fall on his face. God let David fall on his face. God let Elijah run into the cave and moan and whine about how he was going to die. God let Saul, his life, fall apart. God is not going to force any of us to serve Him. God wants us to come to the place where we learn to love Him and we serve Him because we love Him. That we love Him because He first loved us. And the lesson is this, child of God. God provides when you're where God told you to be. You can't tell God no and go somewhere God said not to go and then in that place ask God to bless you in that place. God says, nope, I'm God, you're not. God says, I'm not your puppet. I'm not your little puppy dog that you bring around with me and let out to play with when you want. I am the God of heaven and earth, and you will either obey me or you will not. I will tell you the way. I will show you the path. I will be there. I will provide. I will protect you. But it will be in the place I tell you to be. Oh, that God would help us to learn how necessary it is to trust and obey. My heart breaks at how many Christians do not get this. My heart breaks. Because it really is simple. It's practical. My heart breaks at the number of Christians who continue in their sin, who try to live on the edge, who try to, 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 try to do as little as they have to to appease their conscience that they're still right with God. But they do as much as they can to feed their flesh and to do things in their own ways. And then they wonder all their life, how come there's no peace and no joy, no victory in their life? 
Because the victory of God comes in the place where God told you to be. It comes in the will of God. We cannot live outside the will of God and then ask God to bless it. It's just foolishness. It's absurd. And I say that, and all of us are like, well, yeah, duh, that makes sense. But in reality, so many people live that way. Can I say as plain as day, stop it. Quit it. It's not going to change if you don't. And now let me say, don't beat yourself up and feel like a horrible person because all of us have been there, including the man I'm preaching about this morning. But goodness, there has to come a time where we say, you know what? It's time to learn. Time to learn. How many times have I ever went against God's will, did what I knew I wasn't supposed to do, went upon what I thought felt best? How many times has it ever worked out? Zero. How many times have I did what God told me to do and went God's way, even when it didn't make sense, even when I wasn't fully sure how it was going to work, and even when I didn't fully understand, but I was trying to do it God's way, how many times has God ever failed? Zero. This is practical. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There comes a time we just got to focus our minds on what's true and what's right and say, man, how long am I going to keep doing the same old thing and expecting different results? God meets needs in the place of His assignments. Now listen to this. When does God meet our needs? When? You want to know when. That's what people want to win. The answer is, not a minute before we need it. You look. As the knife was in the air, then God speaks. As the people are at the Red Sea, and the enemy's caving in close enough, the enemy could follow in. Then the Red Sea parts. As their bellies were full with hunger, then the manna comes from heaven. As Elijah is at the brook, the ravens bring food. When the woman made Elisha a cake, didn't say the barrel filled up every three weeks and they had food for three weeks and God filled up, says each day she reached in, there was more there. When does God meet the need? The answer is, not a moment too soon, but at the time appointed by God. God, help us to have the faith to see that this morning. So many people say, God, if you'll do it first, I'll go. Sure. You provide the ram and you show me how it's going to work and you show me everything. I'll go through the motions so it looks like I'm doing something incredibly heroic and faithful. Well, sure you will. You already know the end result. God, if you'll just go ahead and make three barrels full of 
of food there in the back. I'll take what's little up front and I'll make a cake with the last part of it. God says, I'll provide in this moment. It keeps us living by faith. Can I tell you something, child of God? Faith is the avenue that we connect with God. It's, it is the realm in which we communicate with God. It is, it, is, it, is the, it is the way that we live in a relationship with Him. And because of that, God will never stop asking us to live by faith. And furthermore, the closer you get to Him, the more you know about Him, the more the testings come where God says, I'm going to stretch your faith a little bit further now. You've known me in this way before, but you haven't known me in this way. And it never stops. We walk by faith, not by sight. God meets our needs in the moment we have them and not a minute before. Hebrews 4.16 tells us God answered with mercy and grace in the time of need. One final thought this morning and I'm done. And it's actually the entire point of this last three weeks. Abraham called God by the name of Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Abraham was old when he finally mastered his faith. The Bible calls Abraham the father of faith. Go ahead and ask the worship team to come. He calls Abraham the father of faith. Abraham's one of the most revered men in the entire Bible. It was from Abraham that came Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the rest of the Jewish people. The tribe of Judah, which the Lord would come from. It all started with Abraham. The priests, the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, all of it can be traced back to Abraham. And when God was looking for the man whom He was going to bring all of that out of, who did He look for? A man that was perfect? A man that would never fail? A man that never had fear? No. Abraham was a man who had great fears. He was a man like you and I. Abraham was a man who would fall on his face a time or two and we could all look at his story and say, wow, you should have learned. Twice you lied about who your wife was. wasn't once enough. And here's the point. God uses people that are busted and broken up. Here's the point. That God was faithful when Abraham was faithless. Here's the point that God has the ability to accomplish what He said He was going to accomplish despite our weaknesses and failures. And that's not to say that our weaknesses and failures don't have consequences, but that God is able to accomplish His will in our lives. Here's the point. The point to you. The point to you this morning. Have you cut yourself off from ever being used of God in any great capacity because of your failure? Because of your past sin? Because of how many times you tried and failed? 
God says, I can still use you, friend. God says, this thing's a learning process. God says, just like when I called Abraham, I knew he was going to fail. I knew he was going to make a fool of himself from time to time. But I used it to teach him, to show him how faithless he was at times and how much he didn't trust me like he thought he did. And he learned from it. And there came a time when he had the greatest victory that almost any man's ever been recorded. God says to you, I knew you were going to fail. I knew you were going to do that. I called you anyways. How long are you going to disqualify yourself because of something that happened in the past? Get up out of that mess. Make the decision. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to repent. I'm going to learn from my failures. I'm going to realize that God has always used people that made mistakes and I'm no different. It's time for me to get up out of that mess. This morning there might be somebody here. You've never really repented of your sins to start with. You've never really even taken that step of the journey of God's will for your life. As I just told you this morning, if that's you, it is going to be a journey. It's not going to be pretty all the way through. It's not going to be a bed of roses. You're going to have some things you go through where you're going to fail and you're going to wish that you hadn't. But listen, God will be with you. But you've got to start. You've got to be willing to turn from your sins and say, I need a Savior. And this morning, if that's you, this morning, if there's somebody here and you left this building and you got in a car wreck on your way home and you thought that you thought that you were going to make it there, but you didn't. Where would you go? If that's you, and you'd be honest, you say, Preacher, I'm not ready to die. I'm not ready to meet God. I'm not I'm convinced if I met him today, I'd spend forever in hell. Can I plead with you? Please come to Jesus. Please come to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Turn from your wicked ways. Place your faith in Him this morning. Don't leave this place the same lost man or lost woman that you came in, but leave redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Leave a child of God saved, blood-bought, and born again. It can happen this morning if you'll just come. Father, I pray that you move all across this room in Jesus' name. God, I pray you encourage your people. God, I pray this morning that Christians would be encouraged right now through the Holy Spirit, God, in a way that many of them maybe haven't felt in years, Lord, that they'd be reminded you are able. You're not going to give up. You'll finish what you started. You are a faithful God. You are a forgiving God. Hallelujah. God, I pray for somebody that just needs to turn. Get up out of that mess, God, this morning. They do so. So you thought you had to keep this up all the world.